We'll be in John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 38 through 53. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. The chapter numbers are the larger ones. So we'll be in chapter 11, verses 38 to 53. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 9, 700, 768, uh, 768. Uh, to get us caught up, though, because it's been a couple weeks, um, what's happened so far in John 11, verses 1 through 38? Uh, we, we looked first at a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 16, at the beginning of this story when Jesus was uh, away from some of his friends, and all of a sudden he got word that one of his friends was deathly ill, Lazarus. He was sick. The one, the, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus, we see, he, he looks and he says that this illness that he has does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There in verse 4. And that, that verse is the key to understanding this entire chapter, to see what's happening, what is motivating Jesus. So Jesus is motivated by two things, his love for his friends and the glory of his Father. Those are the two driving forces in his life. And he acts in such a way that maybe would surprise us a bit. And so he knows that he's wanting to uh, this illness to glorify God. And so it says in verse 5, he stayed two days longer. So because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed and let Lazarus die. And so as we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago to see why Jesus did that, to, to separate himself and uh, let his friend die, but he was doing this for the love that he had for them to show them more of who he was uh, and also for the glory of the Father. And secondly, then, we see in verses 17 through 36 through 37, Jesus shows up on the scene then. So he's waited back, Lazarus has died, and now he shows up. And he's come and he's met with the same question three different times. First, Martha runs to him and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A little bit later, we see Mary in the house and Jesus comes to her and she looks at him and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And later he was around some of the crowds as he was weeping. The Jews saw him and said, look how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have also kept this man from dying. And so the same question three times, he could have stopped it, and he didn't. And we see Jesus interact with these three different people in three different ways. With Martha, who runs to him, he gives her truth. He gives her theology. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Your hope for your brother is in me, and I can give you that. So he gives her truth. When he comes to Mary, he doesn't give her truth. He gives her tears. He hugs her. He's deeply moved in the spirit and he weeps as he sees his friend hurt. And he knows, okay, she doesn't need truth right now. What she needs is hug and she needs sympathy and she needs my tears. And I love to see the emotion of Jesus. And we'll see this even more in our text today. And then he gets to the crowd and he doesn't give them truth. He doesn't give them tears. He gives them a miracle as he then steps forward and he performs this incredible miracle. But we see Jesus interacting with these three different people three different ways. Because people are wired differently. Jesus doesn't just have a kind of shotgun approach to how he interacts with everyone. He knows that every person's wired differently. There's something that they need differently in that moment. And there's so much help for us in that as we counsel friends who are going through difficult times to know that there's not just one approach to everybody or even in evangelism, that there's not just one approach shotgun across the board that works for everyone, that, that there are different ways that, that we should interact and, and respond to people's questions, to their doubts, to serious questions that they have. 
And so we see him interacting there, and we see him question these three different ways, and that then gets us to verse 38, our text today, as Jesus then arrives on the scene, and he gets to the tomb. Uh, J.C. Ryle, um, um, Anglican bishop in the 1800s, said this about John 11. He said, The chapter that we have now begun is one of the most remarkable in the New Testament, for its grandeur and its simplicity, for its pathos and its solemnity. There has nothing that has ever been written like it. There was nothing ever written like it. So we'll see why it was he would say that as we turn now to verses 38 through 53. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Friends, there is nothing that has ever been written like this. As we see in the the end of this chapter, we see kind of two things taking place. Uh, First, we see the miracle to empty the tomb, verses 38 through 44, and secondly, we see the plot to fill the tomb, verses 45 to 53. So those are the two things that we'll be looking at today, the miracle to empty the tomb and the plot to fill the tomb, as Jesus kind of capstones his public ministry here and shifts into the final chapter of his life. So first, the miracle to enter the tomb. There are a few things we'll be looking at through here. First, I want us to look at verse 38 and the emotion of Jesus that we see here. As Jesus shows up on the tomb in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, who is deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And this word deeply moved, it's, it's our best attempt at a translation. Um, it, the, the word in Greek has a sense of uh, anger to it, indignation. Uh, kind of almost physically like a, a horse who snorts. That, that's kind of what the, the verb itself means. And so Jesus shows up and there's this anger within him. As he comes and he looks and he faces the tomb. Now we see this earlier in the chapter in verse 33. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And I love here that we see, first of all, we see that Jesus had emotions. That Jesus was deeply emotional. That he was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. And that he wept. That there was a range of emotions. There was anger. There was sympathy. There was sorrow. There were tears. Listen, even as we look at Jesus who wept, the shortest verse in the Bible there uh, in verse 35 I can sometimes sense in America that kind of this John Wayne masculinity that says, no, no, men don't cry. No, 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 no. Put her there, partner. That's what we, that's what men say. But friends, ask if we're going to define masculinity, I think we shouldn't look at John Wayne. I think we should look at Jesus. And the most masculine thing that sometimes we can do is to weep with those who are weeping. And so tears aren't a sign of weakness often. They're actually a sign of Christ-likeness. As we come alongside those who are hurt, that emotion is a good thing. It, it, see, this is within the God-man. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, felt emotions deeply. The problem with us is not emotions, is what we do with them. And so we don't need to look at anger that we feel or sorrow that we feel and feel like those things are the issue. No, the issue is often what we do beyond that. But Jesus himself was emotional as he sympathized with those who were around them. And he was angered. He was deeply moved. He was indignant. What was he angry about? Now, listen, I'll go ahead and put this on the table. Commentators are all over the place as far as what it was that Jesus was angry at. Uh, So there's nothing that we get here clearly in the scripture. So I'll tell you what I think, but I, I just want you to know it's what I think. And you can do with it as you will. But as I look at verses 33 and 38, where you see that that Jesus was deeply moved, I ask the question, what was it that moved him? And in 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and when Jesus saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. So when he saw them in their sorrow, he was deeply moved. And then in verse 38, then when Jesus came to the tomb, he was deeply moved. So when Jesus saw his friends who were weeping in the tomb itself, those two things triggered something in him that made him angry. He was hashtag triggered in this moment. But what was it that triggered him? I think as we look at this, I think what it is is Jesus sees both the effects of sin and death in this world, particularly with those who love that he loves deeply. And it angers him as he sees what sin has done. It has brought death to those whom he loves the most. But then also in 38, as he comes now face to face with that enemy, and he sees in this mission, in this final public sign here in John, he comes face to face with the final and greatest enemy of mankind, the one who he will go toe to toe with and he will ultimately conquer. But he comes and he sees the tomb and he is angered. He's almost, it's kind of like a scene, I I imagine, uh, like two boxers who come to the middle of the ring right before the fight, and they face off toe-to-toe, and there's this look of frustration and anger and just uh, macho manhood as they look at one another, and in each other's mind, they're going to say, my singular goal here is to knock you out, defeat you. It's a similar scene, what we see here is Jesus comes toe-to-toe with the tomb, And we see this indignation and this anger rise up within him. So Jesus was angry. We see the emotion of Jesus. But we look then at what that drives him to. That drives him then to this command in verse 39. This command of Jesus. As he then looks in verse 39 and he says, 
take away the stone. Take away the stone. Now listen, we've already read the text, and so we know that Jesus is going to speak, and Lazarus, who is dead for four days, is going to walk out of the tomb. So Jesus, who can think a thought and dead people can come to life, tells some men to move the stone. Now, this is one of, the, one of the details that, for me, that was interesting that I couldn't move beyond. Because I'm going, okay, if Jesus can think a thought or just say three words and dead people can start living, that he can move a stone on his own. He doesn't need men to come and move it for them. But yet still, he comes in and he commands them, take away the stone, even though he has the power to do it. And what he's about to do is far more powerful than moving a stone with his mind like Professor X from the X-Men. It's something far greater than that. So why would he do that? Well, friends, I think we see here a small lesson that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the entire Bible, that Jesus chose to give man something to do, even though he himself could have done it. Here, as elsewhere throughout the Bible, he taught the great lesson that his power does not destroy man's responsibility. Are you tracking with that? That his, his power and his ability to do something doesn't destroy and remove man's responsibility to do the things which he has commanded. Even whenever he's ready and willing to raise the dead, he would rather not have man stand altogether idle over to the side. But he calls them to take part in the story and to be obedient. Friends, there is tons of lessons in our life to take from that same concept and that same principle whether it be our, sanctifi- uh, our sanctification and our growth in godliness and holiness, that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul writes in Philippians 2. But we are called to work out our salvation. So God works in us, but we're called to work out the salvation. We're called to take part in the story, even though God is the one who can do it entirely. He is calling us, and his power does not remove our responsibility to do something. It's the same in evangelism, especially in evangelism. That God, we see in this story, kind of this, this almost metaphor, this living play of what happens in each and every one of our hearts when we become Christians. God speaks into the deadness and the tombs of our hearts, and we come out in life. We are raised from the dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but we were made alive together with Christ. This is the message of what happens in our hearts. But yet, even in the midst of that, he still calls men to move away stones. And so within evangelism, God is the one who is speaking into the darkness of people's hearts and calling people to life, but he has called us to go, to remove stones from people's hearts, to go and take this message. Because if they do not hear, then they will not believe, period. Now, does God have the power? Yes, but that does not remove our responsibility. Friends, he has called us to go. And so we begin to see what our responsibilities are. It is our job responsibility to get the gospel from our lips to their ears. And it's God's responsibility then to get it from their ears to their heart. But if we do not get it to their ears, it will not get to their heart. We have been called, Jesus has called us to go and to make disciples. And if we do not go, then people will not believe. This is what Paul writes in Romans 10. And so he has called us to take away the stone. And so we see in this kind of this picture of what happens in each and every one of our hearts when we became a Christian, it was this story in our life. He looked and he said, come out. And we walked out of the tomb. We came running out of the grave. 
And so we see the emotion of Jesus. He was angry at the effects and ravages of sin in the world. We see then his command to remove the stone. But third, we see then the skepticism of Martha to this command. Right? Martha responds then to this uh, command, and the sister, the sister of this dead man said, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. It's going to smell bad because he's begun already decomposition. It's been four days. So please don't, you, I know that you can do incredible things, but please don't embarrass us. This has been hard enough. Do not make this any worse. And it's interesting as we see here the skepticism of Martha, especially early in the chapter, what her response was when she first came to Jesus. If you look earlier in uh, verse 21, when Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She responds, though, in 22 and says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so you see kind of this faith welling up in her. And then even continuing on, she talks to him uh, in verse 24. She said, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so as you see kind of this strength of faith in Martha here just a few minutes ago, she says, Jesus, I know that anything you ask, the Father will give to you and that my brother will rise again on the last day. Whenever that faith is put to action, and she's called to help roll the stone away, that faith backs up just a little bit. It, friends, it's a lot easier to have strong faith in word and not in deed. Whenever we're called to put what we believe actually into our lives, it becomes a good bit more difficult. And we see it in Martha as well. As she says, I know that you're the resurrection and the life. I know that whatever you ask the Father, he will give to you, but please don't ask me to roll the stone away. Please. Friends, it's the same for us. It's easier to have a strong faith by what we say and not by what we do. When our faith has to actually be put into action, it becomes an incredibly amount harder. It's a lot harder to believe that Jesus loves you so much and is working every moment of your life for your good and his glory whenever you, like Mary and Martha, had to just bury your brother. It's hard to believe that in those moments. It's a lot harder to trust that God is both good and in control of every second of your life when you just lost your job or you haven't heard yet from your friends or family in Puerto Rico. Whenever what we believe begins to get put into the difficulties of our lives, that begins to become harder. It's a lot harder to believe that God is a God of peace and desires you to have that divine peace in your life when everything in your life feels like it's out of control. But what we see in this story is that whenever our lives aren't turning out like we would have wished, it's not because Jesus has left us. On the contrary, we're actually going through what we're going through precisely because he loves us so much. And he is giving us into these situations not to just make us go through hardship because we see here Jesus is sympathetic. He cries with his children who, love, who, who are crying. But he's letting them go through this so that they will experience more of him so that they will know more of who he is. And friends, that is the most loving thing that God can do, is to reveal more of who he is to us, to help us trust him more, to help us love him more, to show us more of who he is in his character, that whether it be in good situations or bad, whenever that is the result, friends, that is good and that is loving. And we see that in this story, Jesus stayed back, And he let Lazarus die. And he let those whom he loved go through remarkable grief. But we've got to see in here and in our lives that the silence of God does not mean the same thing as the absence of God. 
The silence of God does not mean the same thing as the absence of God. He is right there with us and he loves us and is putting us through whatever it is in our life to show us more of who he is. He is in control of every bit of it and friends, he is good, he is sovereign and he is doing this so that we may know him more. And that is the most loving thing that he can do. So in the difficulty for us when what we believe and what we're going through seem to be at odds with one another, we have to hear the question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26. He looked at her and he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Not just now, but when you're standing in front of a tomb. Do you believe this? I am good and I am sovereign. I am a God of peace and want you to have that. Do you believe this in your life? As Jesus stands here today and and what we believe sometimes is difficult is how we play it out. Hear Jesus looking at us today and asking us, do you believe this? Not just in word, but in action and in deed and in your life. So lastly, we see then the authority of Jesus in this miracle. Verse 43, the authority of Jesus. As Jesus stands at the tomb and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And immediately this guy who'd been dead for four days walks out of the tomb. Now this is the whole point of the story. Everything was building up to this moment to show people what the authority and power of the Son of Man is. That he has, with a word, authority over the greatest enemy that mankind has ever encountered. Right? Us as a kind of culture, we've progressed in a lot of ways. We've been able to fight a lot of things. But one thing we have never been able to figure out apart from Hollywood is how to defeat death. It is our greatest enemy and one we have no answer for. But Jesus shows up here on this scene to show that I have authority over it. And this is what this whole story was building up to, to reveal the glory of the Son of Man, to lift him up. And so Jesus wanted to make a point here. There's an interesting detail uh, that Lazarus had been dead for four days. And it's interesting because uh, in a lot of rabbinical teaching in this day, people believe that the spirit, whenever someone died, that person's spirit would hover over the body for three days. And there was the possibility that they could re-enter that body, the person would come back to life. But when the fourth day hit, the face would begin to change, and they believe in that moment then the spirit would depart, and there was, death was final. So Jesus waits four days on purpose. So when he shows up, there is no question what's about to happen. Lazarus, who has been dead and has now experienced ultimate death, there seems like there is nothing that can be done. But Jesus shows up and he speaks a word and Lazarus comes to life. Friends, this is remarkably encouraging for me and for each of us as we see this, that there is no situation that is beyond the life-giving power of Christ's words. In our life, in the life of people around us, this is true for you, it's true for me. So there are some of you who maybe walked in here and, and maybe for the past week you have been in just the midst of, of sin and darkness and you felt so much guilt. You felt like you've run from God and there have maybe been times that have entered your mind where you go, there's no way that God could love me. Not only could he love me, but it seems like there's nothing he can do for me. There, it seems like there's nothing anyone can do to get me out of this situation. Friends, in this moment, see that there is nothing beyond the reach of God's grace. That our grace may be, that our sin may be great, but his mercy and his grace are greater still. Are for people around us, 
as we go and we begin to share and share our faith and gospel with those who are around us, remember this truth that there is nothing beyond the saving and life-giving power of Jesus' words. There is no situation beyond him. As we go, we can have that confidence and that boldness to begin to share in that sense. But as Jesus goes and he stands and he says these three words, Lazarus, come out. I I can't help but wonder if he hadn't put the word Lazarus there and just said, come out. I think every tomb on the earth would have emptied. That's the kind of power and authority that Jesus has. But he wisely adds the one word so things didn't get too weird. And just Lazarus walks out. But friends, Lazarus would die again. He's not still around, hanging out in Bethany, waiting for us to come talk to him. He died again. We still needed something greater than this. But just as in this story, as throughout all of Jesus' signs and miracles, Jesus was giving us a picture, a taste, a glimpse of what he can do and what our lives will ultimately look like. As he healed the man who was born blind from birth, as he healed the man who had been uh, paralyzed for 38 years, as he then raised to life Lazarus who was dead, Jesus in each of these is saying, friends, as you look at this, I'm giving you a trailer, a taste, a piece of what your life will be like ultimately when I return. This isn't the end. Each one of these people, the blind man would close his eyes again. The paralyzed man would lay down again and never never rise up. Lazarus would die again. Each one of these miracles didn't ultimately uh, continue on for eternity. But Jesus is coming saying, this is what I can do and one day will ultimately do forever. There will be a day when all sadness will end. It is not quite here yet, but it is pointing towards that day. And we can be confident in that because Lazarus' resurrection was pointing to another resurrection. As Jesus was saying, this is what I can do. Now watch what I will do. As he walked into the grave and he was raised. And he did not die again. He's the only man ever who walked the earth who died, who's no longer dead. That there is something unique about him. And in that resurrection, we see the promise of God that says, okay, I have accepted the sacrifice that Christ has given me. And what I have done to him, I will do to every single one of those who believe. Raise them to life for eternity. That this is our hope. And it all hinges in that moment, in his grave. And I know if, if, if people are here and they're new to Christianity, or maybe not Christians at all, that this sounds remarkably strange. It's like, it's not even October yet. Why are we talking about mummies? It's not even Halloween. We're talking about dead people who are alive again, the walking dead. And I understand that. But friends, our entire faith, you even heard it in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, our entire faith hinges on whether or not Jesus raised from the dead. That's the hinge point. If he didn't, then we of all people are to be pitied and our faith is futile. If that's what it centers around. And so that's the point that I always encourage people to try to dig into and see, did Jesus in fact die and come back again? Because if so, listen, everything else that happens in this book kind of falls underneath that. This guy who was raised to life again. This guy who claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And it's in his resurrection then that we find our hope in our life. That as we are hidden with Christ in God, that everything that he has will be ours as well. Again, the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, he calls Christ the first fruits. That he was raised and we look and we see in him what God did in him, he will do in us. That's the hope that we have. And what he did here to Lazarus, one day he will do ultimately and fully with us. It's like the line in the song that we sing often, the hymn, what a foretaste of deliverance.
how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. That that is the hope that we have. It's the foretaste of deliverance. And our hope is unwavering because Christ has risen and he has risen indeed. And he then changes the way that Christians interact with death. Now, all of a sudden, he comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you believe in me, you will not die forever. There will be a day when you are raised again. That's why Jesus calls, when he refers to death, he refers to as asleep. And I love that. He, he changes, he gives us new categories for how to interact with death. That it is not final for the Christian. It is not the last word in our life. And he changes the job description of death in the Christian's life. It is no longer an executioner, it's just a chauffeur. Death's role now in our life for the Christian is to just take us to Jesus. That's, that's what we do now as we interact with it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean there isn't pain, sorrow, and anger. In fact, that's the godly and Christ-like way to respond. But what it means is we're not crushed when it happens. That we're able to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. As now we see that death has a new job in our lives. And so this is the miracle that we see, this, this miracle that empties the tombs. He calls Lazarus out. But the response then, kind of quickly, as we look at the response to this miracle, it leads to now a new plot to fill the tomb again in verses 45 to 53. And so the, the people now who have responded in 45, there were many Jews who were there who had come with Mary and had seen what, Je- what Jesus had done, who believed in him. And it makes sense, right? I would imagine if I was there and I saw this take place, I would go, okay, you know, I think I'm going to start listening to this guy. But look in 46. There were some people who were there who went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They saw it and they believed that Jesus had, in fact, raised Lazarus from the dead. They did not believe in Christ. They did not trust him. They instead went to the Pharisees and go, hey, look what this guy did. What are we going to do about it? And the chief priests and the Pharisees in 47 then, they begin with this kind of selfish concern that they have in response to what Jesus has done. Look at how they respond. They gathered the council. They said, well, what are we to do now? For this man performs many signs. So again, listen, this is so important. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew what Jesus was doing. They knew that he was turning water to wine and making paralyzed people walk and raising dead people to life. It wasn't that they went, okay, we got to figure out how he's doing all this, this magician. What sleight of hand he's figuring out. They go, no, no, this guy's performing many signs. He's doing all of this. And I know there can be often in our hearts uh, this sense to go, okay, if I could just see God do miraculous things, then I know that I would believe. Friends, let me tell you, as, as long as people have been around, that's not the case. It is not just seeing tangible evidence that makes us believe. It is Christ speaking into our heart's life. And so don't believe that lie that would say, oh, if only I saw more evidence then, because these people saw a man raise someone else to life and then said, okay, what do we have to do now to kill him? That was their response. And why? Why would they respond like that? In 48, they said, well, if we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him, rightfully so. And then if everyone believes in him, the Romans will come and they will take, both, uh, take away both our place and our nation. So do you hear their concern? Do you hear what their main concern is? It is not, is what he's saying true or not? It is, oh, if he continues like this, the Romans will come and they'll remove our position of power and they will destroy our nation because this guy's gonna raise up an anarchy, a rebellion against the Roman government. 
We can't let him keep going because everyone will believe and then we will lose our place and we will lose our nation. Their primary concern was one of selfishness. They were concerned about themselves. And friends, what is, what is our major concern in our life? Are we concerned about ourselves and our story or about God's? Because in and of themselves, these two things are diametrically opposed to one another. They do not coexist. We see Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5, and he said, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all because those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul says that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, him dying for all, happened so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. They would be free from the sense of trying to constantly fight for our self-preservation, and we are free to live for the glory of Christ and Christ alone, for him who for their sake died and was raised. That when you become a Christian, your life no longer is about you. This is how Rick Warren started his book, Purpose Driven Life. First sentence, it's not about you. And friends, he nailed it. That's exactly right. But how many of us live that way? In the decisions we make, the people that we have into our lives, where we spend our time, our money, our efforts, are we living for ourselves or for God? Are we living for ourselves or for him who for our sake died and was raised? Because these two things are at odds with one another. But what we see is we begin to then shift into that mindset to go, okay, I will live for the glory of God and him alone. That's why I'm here. That is my purpose. And I'll let that purpose drive my life. When we begin to do that, we actually find in that moment when we make that choice, then that is the greatest joy that we find in our lives. As, as strangely as we begin to live for someone else, it's the greatest thing we can do for ourselves. So Christianity is not just, oh, I'm going to deny myself and make sure I don't get anything I want and just live for God. Friends, that's the opposite of what Jesus says he wants for us. We'll see in just a few chapters in John 15, Jesus says, I have come so that you may have joy and joy to the fullest. Whenever you live for me, that's when you will find the most joy and satisfaction in your life. That we're actually freed from this self-deception of trying to live for ourselves. Whenever we live for him, we actually, in that moment, experience the most joy that we can. So we see this selfish concern from them drives them then to a murderous solution. Verses 49 and 50 is one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. He said, no, no, you guys don't know anything. Nor do you understand this simple idea that it's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So Caiaphas is proposing this. He says, listen, it's going to be better for us if we just kill this guy and kind of put an end to this insurrection, then if we let him continue on and the Romans come and destroy our whole nation. So it's better that one man should die than all the people. And so he was saying it, again, selfishly. He was saying it trying to scheme and plot and try to squelch this rebellion. But notice in verse 51 and 53 that he kind of accidentally prophesied exactly what God had wanted to do. 51, that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather um, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That he, kind of selfishly trying to say this plan, accidentally prophesied exactly what it was that God wanted him to come and do. What he wanted Jesus to come and die for the people. 
and they made plans to put him to death. And that, that verse, every time I read it, it just chills me. Because from this moment on, they began then to get together and try to conspire and say, what can we do to kill this man? They made plans. They began to reason. They began to plot. They began to talk about, what can we do to kill him? And we see as they are talking through this, and as John writes this, there's one word that keeps coming up over and over again. It's the word for. Not three, four, five, four, but four, F-O-R. All right, we see Caiaphas um, prophesy this as he says it's, one, it's better that one man should die for the people. Or in 51, the high priest prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God. And that word, if you're a, a highlighter or underliner or circler in your Bible, circle, underline, highlight that word. Because it's in that idea that we get that sense of what Jesus did on the cross. And this idea of substitution. That he died for the people. That he took their place. That he came and what is it the kind of uh, underlying um, principle of his mission is to come and take the place of those uh, whom he loved. We sang it earlier in one of the songs. That as yet as his life was taken... Still, I was granted mine. That there is this substitution that happens. His life is taken and ours is given. And we see in this story that as Jesus now stops Lazarus' funeral, he starts his own. As he then, through this miracle, begins to set in motion what is now going to not be stopped. As he sets his face towards Jerusalem and the final weeks of his life, and these men begin to plot and reason, and make plans to put him to death. That he frees Lazarus from death, and he begins to walk towards his own. Gives him life, and walks towards death. This is at the very heart of the gospel. For that Jesus died instead of us. That he died for the nation. And not just for the nation. We also see here the worldwide heart of God. Right, not just for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And again, we see throughout the entire Bible, there is this worldwide heart that God has to go and to bring together those who are scattered abroad, to go and make disciples, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered. And so again, we see this image as Paul writes in Acts 17, similar as he's in Corinth. God tells him in Corinth, there are many in this city who are mine. You have to now go and preach the gospel. And it's the same way here as John writes. He said that the children of God are scattered around the world. And our mission is to go and bring them into one. They are there, friends, but we have to go and take away the stones. And if we do not go, then they will not hear. They will not believe. And so we see here the heart of God then to go and not just die for the nation, but for the entire world. This is the very heart of the gospel and it leads us to his resurrection and the hope that we have in our death. To take this hope of, of the death of Christ conquering, um, conquering death, to take that hope to the world. This is what we are called to. As we see this final sign from Jesus, as he comes and he comes face to face with our greatest enemy and he defeats it with a word. That this is our hope and this is our story. And this is what God has called us into. So the question is, will we be faithful? Do you believe this? 
Do you believe that God has given you this hope that he has died in your place for you, a substitute for you, and is now calling you to go and to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad? May we be a church that obeys that command, that here in Claremont and around the world, that we would be one who would go to gather into one the children of God who are scattered across this county, across this state, across this country, and across this globe that that would be the organizing principle of our lives, to take this hope of the resurrection, this hope of the gospel, to the lostness and the death of this world. This world.